his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is my show. My friends come on and you know them. We talk about the sports you care about, basketball now, golf, and the metronome of your life, baseball. Whether it's opening day, the big tournament, or one of the majors, we have the best to preview it and break down just what happened. And let's not forget the important stuff, the amount of daylight where I live, the importance of speedies, and the rankings of beach-style pizza. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. I'm Heather Vale, and I'm speaking with Tammy Hanslair, CEO and State Director for Communities and Schools of Nevada. CIS is holding their annual Today for Tomorrow Gala in November with a lace-up for the future theme. Tammy, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Heather. It's so nice to be back. So we've talked about this multiple times, but for people who aren't familiar or haven't heard, what exactly does Communities in Schools do? So Communities in Schools is part of the nation's leading evidence-based, I like to say stay-in-school organization. We believe that every child has potential regardless of race, zip code, or socioeconomic background. And sometimes they just may lack equal opportunity to succeed. So we place a full-time professionally trained site coordinator in every school that we're in. And all of our site coordinators work to remove whatever barrier it is that keeps our kids from coming to school and being successful. So it could be eyeglasses, it could be a new pair of shoes, it could be a food bag over the weekend. And then when we start really having that one-on-one relationship, we work very, very closely with our students to work with them on attendance goals, behavior goals, coursework goals, even a social emotional goal. There might be some trauma that's going on in their family. Again, we do whatever it takes to keep them um, coming to school and make sure that they see their school building as a safe place for them. Nice. Okay. So how many schools are you in now? We're in 108 schools across Nevada in four school districts. That number seems like it keeps getting bigger every time we talk. How exactly has the program grown over the years? Yes, it has gotten bigger. Um, unfortunately, it's gotten bigger because the need has gotten more intense, especially after the pandemic and our kids are coming back to school and they you know, had different experiences, you know, during our COVID years. Um, this year alone, Heather, we added 17 schools wow. here in Nevada, 16 of which are based um, here in Las Vegas and Henderson. And that is a mix of elementary schools, um, middle schools, and also high schools. And then we added another school in uh, Winnemucca, Nevada this year as well. So how do you choose which schools get a Communities in Schools program on site? Well, we could certainly make the argument that any school could put a communities and schools on their campus, but we really focus um, on our Title I or our high need schools. So schools that are maybe in higher poverty areas and lower income areas, maybe they just need some additional support 
Um, we work very closely with our school district partners. So they help us identify maybe schools that are struggling a little bit more that maybe don't have um, as many counselors or as many social workers in the school. So we, we work very, very closely with them. And then the other thing that we're really, really paying attention to is growing our program in feeder patterns. What I mean by that is because we're in elementary, middle, and high schools, we want to make sure that our kiddos that are going from fifth grade into middle school into sixth grade, there's a communities and schools in their elementary school. It's also in their middle school. So when they're transitioning, there is, you know, we always like to say our little house is like a safe place. And so when they see the house, they know that's a safe place. And then the same thing in high school. So when our students are moving from middle school into high school, they have the same safe place as well. So we're really keeping that continuum of care really, really strategic all the way through, you know, our little fourth graders, or if they're in pre-K or kindergarten, all the way up until graduation. Okay, now you mentioned Title I schools primarily. What exactly is a Title I school? Yeah, thank you. Good question. A Title I school is a federally mandated program where schools that have a, more than 40% of their kiddos qualify for free and reduced lunch, which is an indicator at the poverty level that they're living at or below poverty level. Schools get additional funding from the federal government to help them pay for things like communities and schools. And so those are the schools that we primarily will serve. Not all of our schools are Title One, but the majority of them are. Okay. Now you were talking about feeder patterns and students having access all the way from elementary through middle to high school. Normally, we think of high school students as being the ones that we have to convince to stay in school, but you're starting when they're very, very young. So why does that help? It helps for a variety of ways. I mean, there's a lot of kids that have a, a lot of different barriers and, and not just kids, but our families too. So we want to make sure, again, that school is that safe place and they're getting whatever they need from a school building. And we want to be able to start that when they're in kindergarten, when they're in first grade, um, because we know kids just don't wake up their junior year and decide to drop out of school. It's been kind of a slow progression of things that have gotten really hard. So if they know that at school they can have, you know, an extra food bag over the weekend or if they can get extra tutoring for their math test, or if they, you know, need a new pair of shoes, or if they need to get ready in our resource room, which we do have on every school, one of our campuses, that that is a safe place for them. And they, they have that one-to-one -one relationship with a caring adult. And let me tell you, Heather, our teachers do such an incredible job. They work very, very hard. But we also know our classrooms are very large, especially here in Nevada. Um, and I know we're investing a lot of money in education to get that to a, to a more manageable space. So when you put a communities and schools on a campus, we're not just supporting the students and the families, although that is a, a big part of it. We're supporting our teachers too, because our teachers don't need to take money out of their pockets to buy school supplies or hygiene items for their classrooms. They can get those from a communities and schools resource room. So there's a variety of ways of which CIS really increases our education, the landscape and making it really safe for our kids to continue to come to school and get what they need, whatever they need, whatever barrier that is. Okay. Now, do individual kids typically seek out the CIS resource room on their own or do the CIS staff seek them out? All of the above and then some. 
Okay. So because our site coordinators go to our schools every single day, they become part of the fabric of the school. They work very closely with our principals and our administrators, social workers, counselors, teachers. So they have a, like a, an MTSS, like a multi-tiered support group on campus that helps identify what students might need this additional support. So teachers will refer to a, to a CIS room. Um, a counselor might refer to a CIS site coordinator. The site coordinators do do some playground duty or lunchroom duty or before school you know, at the buses or after school. So they might notice additional kiddos that maybe are sitting by themselves at lunch or, you know, maybe are not coming to school consistently. Again, it takes a village to raise a child. And that's the reason why, you know, you put communities in schools on a campus. And then the other thing that we do is we bring people to the campus. So we bring in organizations to help us remove those barriers. So we'll bring in eye care for kids to get reading glasses. We'll bring in future smiles to help with dental sealants. And if there's additional dental work that needs to be done, we'll help refer partners that might do that work on a pro bono basis. Um, we work with you know our food banks across the country. We work with our mental health providers. Um, when we talk about communities and schools, we're literally bringing the entire community into our campus. Even, you know, your listeners can come and help us. We sometimes need tutors. We need people to come and help set up field days or maybe help with um, shoe giveaways or things like that. There's so many different ways our community can help. Wow, that's awesome. Okay, so tell us about the Today for Tomorrow gala that you've got coming up. Oh, well, this is one of the best fall galas of the year. You know, we always do an incredible theme. You know, it's it's lounge furniture. It's not your traditional. We actually like to say that we throw a party that raises money because people have such a great time. And this year, we're excited to be with a new partner this year. We're at the Palms Hotel and Casino, and we're going to be on Friday, November 3rd. And what time is it? Six o'clock. Okay. Now, what's the lace up for the future theme all about? Well, the lace up for the future theme, a little drum roll, if you will, is we are so excited to have our honorees this year to be our world champion Las Vegas Aces basketball team and their president, Nikki Fargus, our first champions. The Aces have just given so much hope and so much pride to our city, our town, and especially for our students. They are role models for our kids, you know, demonstrating um, what happens when talent and opportunity meet up. They've been incredible advocates for mental health in our schools. And so that's what Lace Up for the Future is all about, is honoring the Las Vegas Aces and Nikki Fargus and all the amazing things they're bringing to our community. So how does that theme affect the dress code? Are people going to wear sneakers to lace up for the future? Absolutely. We are embracing the sneakerhead culture. Um, it's going to be inspired, of course, by, you know, we have a lot of um, great chefs that help us participate. We serve really great food and we want people to be comfortable. So we're encouraging people to, um, you know, again, people come as in, in groups. And so there's a lounge and a lot of our um, donors like to have the whole lounge dress in a theme. So, you know, they can all wear, you know, their sneakers, but maybe, um, you know, think about what is their own personal history of sneaker culture? Do you want to celebrate the aces and, you know, come as, you know, some representation of the aces? 
do you want to throw it back to the original UNLV, you know, 1990 basketball team when, you know, we won the championship so many years ago? For those UNLV grads, go Rebels. I, of course, always think about that. Um, how do you want to embrace the sneakerhead culture? Um, it's also 50 years of hip hop. So do you want to bring hip hop into it? It is going to be a really great celebration of all things Lace Up for the Future. Nice. Okay. I hope a lot of people wear tuxedos with the sneakers because that's a look that we haven't really seen since the 80s, right? So Tuxedos and sneakers, sequins and sneakers. I mean, this is yeah. anything goes. Cocktail dress and sneakers. Absolutely. <laughs> We're ready for it. Okay, so besides the 2022 world champion Las Vegas Aces, who else is going to be featured or highlighted or entertaining at the event? Well, we are still working out our entertainment, so I can't really give away all my secrets yet. Um, But you know it's going to be a really fantastic event with lots of surprise and delight. We're thrilled to have so many partners joining us. Of course, as I mentioned, we're at the Palms. We'll actually be inside the Chaos Nightclub. So again, not a traditional venue for a a nonprofit event. We very much embrace the lounge furniture vibe. Um, We've got partners like the Las Vegas Raiders. We've got partners like Elaine P. Wynn and Family Foundation. Um, And then our event partners are Destinations by Design. They've been longtime partners of ours. So we've got a lot of cool surprise and delights that we'll be announcing soon. Awesome. And it seems like Chaos is the hot venue this season because I went to an event there the other night and there's another one coming up and it just it seems to be like the perfect spot to have just that amazing event where you've got, you know, a little bit of nightclub vibe and just a lot of fun. I think so. I think I've I agree. I've seen some really great events that I we are thrilled to be in ex- excellent company when it comes to uh, chaos and the palms. Awesome. Okay, so how do people find out more about communities and schools of Nevada or get tickets to the Today for Tomorrow Gala? Everything is right on that website, cisnevada.org. We just released our um, our ticket prices. We just released another sponsorship level if you want to bring six friends, um, lots of ways to support if you want to be a volunteer, lots of ways to participate and support and celebrate our aces. All right. Awesome. So CISNevada.org is the website, stands for Communities and Schools of Nevada, CISNevada.org. You can find out more about Communities and Schools of Nevada. You can volunteer, you can donate. Or you can get your tickets to the Today for Tomorrow Gala with the special Lace Up for the Future theme this year. And all of that, again, is at cisnevada.org. And the event is happening Friday, November 3rd at 6 p.m. at Chaos Nightclub at the Palms Casino Resort. So cisnevada.org is the place to go to. And Tammy, I want to thank you so much for being here, letting us know more about what Communities in Schools is doing for our community and the growth, the amazing work that you're doing with the kids and especially the Today for Tomorrow Gala, which is raising funds to help you continue doing that amazing work. So I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thanks so much, Heather. Really always so wonderful to be back. And um, we just love Nevada so much and thrilled to, uh, to be able to support our students across the state. 
When students struggle in school because they are hungry. Or fall behind because they lack school supplies or clean clothing. Being greeted at the start of every school day by the smile of a caring adult can make all the difference. Especially someone from the community. Someone who knows firsthand the obstacles students might be facing. And what it will take to help them thrive. At Communities in Schools, our site coordinators surround students with a community of support and remain by their side to ensure that they have everything they need to engage in learning and succeed in school and in life. Access to technology, learning materials, and even one-to-one mentor support. We are there for them all day, every day. This is what Communities in Schools is all about. Going all in for kids in schools, in communities, and beyond. To learn more, visit communitiesinschools.org. That's communitiesinschools.org. You're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. I'm Heather Vale, and I'm speaking with Jennifer Lewis, spokesperson for the Nevada State Contractors Board. Some new contract requirements for residential improvement projects have recently taken effect that everyone should know about. Jennifer, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So before we go into the new regulations, what is the Nevada State Contractors Board? Thank you for asking. The Nevada State Contractors Board is a quasi-state agency whose primary mission is to serve and protect the health and safety of the public. And we do that through the various functions of our board. Um, We are a seven-member board that's appointed by the governor, and we are overseen by an executive officer um, and administrative uh, staff underneath. But our main functions of the board are our contractor licensing. So we ensure and kind of vet all of the applicants for contractor licenses to ensure that they have the proper qualifications and backgrounds to perform the trades that they are seeking. In addition to our licensing function, we have an investigative department who oversees consumer complaints and assists with the residential recovery fund, which can provide financial recourse to consumers who have hired licensed contractors following the outcomes of their investigations. Our administrative function kind of handles all of the administrative side of the board and certainly serves to match maximize efficiencies in our operations so that we can best serve the public in their time of need. Okay. And how long has the Nevada State Contractors Board been around? We've been around since 1941. Nice. Okay. Now, when we're talking about contractors, what are the various categories of contractors that we might be using for home improvement or repairs around the house? Absolutely. When it comes to home improvements, you're really going to run the gamut with the types of contractors you'll interact with. So you've got your plumbers, your electricians, you may have uh, roofing needs or fencing or landscaping. Um, Whatever the need is, we always want to make sure that you're hiring and verifying that you have a properly licensed contractor. That way you have the full protections and recourse of the board should something go wrong during the course of your project. Okay, so when you say hiring and verifying licensed contractors, how do we verify that the contractor we're interested in is licensed? Two easy steps, I should say three really. You can call the contractor's board, but most expeditiously would be a quick search on the contractor's board website, or you can download our mobile application, NSCB Mobile. Um, That will just give you a quick link to the license search function. The best way to search for a contractor's license is by their license number. It is five to seven digits, plug that in. It'll pull up the entire contractor license detail, including the contractor's business 
name, their address. Um, it'll also show like the monetary limit. If they have an active license, that is what you want to see under status is that they have an active status. But this will provide you kind of any disciplinary history that the contractor's board may have taken. And kind of just lets you verify that, you know, this is somebody that you feel confident working with. Okay. And we get that license number from any paperwork that they give us or... That's correct. You can find that they are required to keep it on all of their contracts, bids, quotes, um, business vehicles, business cards, anything that's advertising their company, their license number should be affixed to. A red flag is if they can't provide that to you, they should just be able to disclose that to you either in person or if you have them on the phone. And of course, through documents themselves. When they can't do that, oftentimes that's a red flag. You may be dealing with an unlicensed contractor. Okay, good to know. So what are the new contract requirements that went into effect recently? Absolutely. So what it did is it just kind of helped to standardize the contract terms. That way, both the contractor and consumer both are on the same page. Um, but most importantly, that the consumer now has kind of a guideline for what to expect in their home improvement projects. As we talk about this, I want to just kind of refer a couple times that we have made a contract checklist for home improvement projects that consumers can download off of our website. Right now, it's on the home page, but you can also find it under the consumer resources section as well. But it kind of calls out the specific and most important things that we want to encourage consumers to look at, specifically making sure that their information and the contractor's information is clearly stated so that there's no question of who the parties are. And one of the main things that we really want to highlight is this new requirement for the down payment. The down payment can now not exceed more than $1,000 or 10% of the aggregate contract price, whichever is less. This is a really important consumer protection initiative because the contractor's board, unfortunately, and many of the complaints that we see when it comes to money being paid up front, typically you can see up to 50% deposits being made and then no or very little work is performed on the back end. And we call that somewhat abandonment of profit. Project. And unfortunately, those are the most devastating cases. And sometimes those sums can be extremely high. So this is a really nice protection for both parties to ensure that, you know, the contract and the project get start off on an even foot. Then we encourage progress payments, especially for larger projects, letting you and the contractor negotiate, you know, the amount of work to be performed before a next payment is due and making sure that all of those terms are clearly defined in the contract itself. The list of requirements is a little bit extensive, so I would definitely encourage consumers to read up on it. But the down payment's important, the schedule of progress payments, and then just knowing that the homeowner is required or allowed to initial every part of that contract as the contractor sees fit. Um, just to ensure, again, that every piece of information has been reviewed and approved by both parties involved. So really look back to that contractor checklist on our website. It is a great resource for consumers to download and just have accessible as you meet with contractors for any upcoming projects. Okay. Now, what should homeowners do if a contractor tries to charge more than what the new guidelines allow? You can always file a complaint anytime you have a, a concern that your contract or the proceedings of the contract are not being adhered to per the new statutory guidelines. Always file a complaint with the contractor's board. Doing so allows us to take a look into your concerns and see if we're able to validate them and then, of course, work toward remedy or resolution of those concerns. 
Okay. Now, I mean, we could just say, hey, you're only supposed to charge me $1,000 or 10% on the down payment. Um, do you think we could amend this? Do you recommend doing that, like just talking it out? Or is that a red flag that means, yeah, let's not use this contractor? Well, a little twofold there, you know, on the homeowner side, I think it empowers them to have these conversations by knowing what the law states um, and having this contract checklist in front of them kind of reassures that they've done their homework and that they're using board resources to guide them in the conversation. Again, your down payment is really something that the homeowner ultimately elects to pay or not. So that should be the starting point for any project. If a contractor is unwilling to adhere to those terms, my assumption would be that's probably not the right contractor for your project. So we always encourage you to get at least three bids when possible. And um, that kind of gives you some level playing ground as to you know, are these contractors kind of all bidding in the same range? Is it within an industry standard? Or are you getting really highs and really lows? And then you kind of got one in the middle. Um, so it just helps you to make an educated decision and meet with other contractors as well to see who is the best fit for your project. Okay, so get three bids so that we can compare between them. Where do you recommend that we find these contractors in the first place who would be able to give those bids? So we do not make contractor recommendations. However, that license search tool that I told you about that's on our website, as well as the mobile app, actually allows you to search for a classification. By classification, I mean a trade. So if you needed an electrician, you can search for electrical trades, plumbing trades, etc. in your designated area. And by doing that, it'll generate a list of all licensed contractors in your area. And that's a great place to start. It only pulls those that are actively licensed. Um, we still encourage you to verify, you know, dig into their license details as we would normally do just to make sure that they have good standing. But once you identify three, you know, give three a call and, and see, you know, which ones ever stand out to you. Okay, awesome. Now, you mentioned the Residential Recovery Fund. How exactly does that work? The Residential Recovery Fund kind of follows, in most cases, our complaint process. So once homeowners have up to four years to file a claim with the Residential Recovery Fund, if they feel damages were incurred during the course of their project, our complaint process or the Recovery Fund claim itself would kind of go through an investigative process to validate any issues and kind of what the damages incurred were, if any. That case then gets submitted to the Recovery Fund Committee, who reviews it, meets with both parties in an administrative setting. And then at the end of the day, the um, committee, based on the evidence provided, makes their decision on an award at the end of that day. It can provide up to $40,000 in financial relief to consumers who have been harmed by licensed contractors. But again, the qualifications are you have to be the owner of a single family residence and you must file that complaint within four years of the project. Okay. I mean, that's a good time frame. I'm sure that's possible in almost every scenario. Absolutely. Awesome. Okay. Now you've mentioned the NSCB mobile app, NSCB mobile, and you've also mentioned the website where people can search and they can verify contractors and they can download the checklist under consumer resources. But what is the actual website? NSCB.nv.gov. All right. Awesome. So nscb.nv.gov is the website to go to. That stands for Nevada State Contractors Board, nscb.nv.gov. So it's Nevada government. 
And there you can find everything that Jennifer's been talking about today. You can search for contractors in various different categories. You can verify that they're licensed, look them up. You can download the checklist of all the various things that you should keep in mind when hiring a contractor to do home improvements. You can find that under consumer resources. And if you prefer to do it all on your phone, you can download the NSCB mobile app. And again, the website, nscb.nv.gov. And Jennifer, I want to thank you so much for being here and letting us know about these new guidelines that I think most people probably haven't heard about and very important and pretty awesome guidelines. So I'm glad you're here sharing that with us as well as what to look for in a contractor and how to make sure that they're actually licensed. So I really appreciate your time with us here today. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Heather. It's always a pleasure. You have a great day. What's scarier than me? <laughs> How about not participating in Trick or Treat for UNICEF, which lets everyone do some good for children worldwide while celebrating the spooky stuff? Visit trickortreatforunicef.org to make a quick donation or to spread the word that it's time to add some meaning to your Halloweening. That's trickortreatforunicef.org. <laughs> This is the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. I'm Heather Vale, and I'm speaking with car buying expert Brian Moody. According to a new Kelly Blue Book survey, 67% of consumers are worried that an electric vehicle would require at least a moderate lifestyle change. Most of those think a hybrid would better suit their needs. Brian, thank you so much for being here today. Yes, thanks for having me. So what is the general temperature across the country when people think about buying an EV or a hybrid car? Well, generally speaking, we know that about 50% of people that we asked said that they were open to the idea of getting an all-electric car. That means a car that runs only on batteries. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to buy one tomorrow or even the next purchase, but they're at least open to the idea. However, as you said before, most people think that a hybrid is the best fit for their lifestyle today. And I think that makes sense. I don't know if the average consumer knows that today's hybrids can get 40, 50, or even near 60 miles per gallon. I don't think that's common knowledge. So if your ultimate goal is to pollute less, hybrids and plug-in hybrids can help you do that. Okay. Now, what is the difference between a hybrid and a plug-in hybrid? A hybrid is something like your typical Toyota Prius, for example, that we can think about going years back. You gas it up, it has a gasoline engine, that gas engine charges a small electric motor that uses it in combination to get great gas mileage. So say in a hybrid, if you're in the parking lot doing shopping and you're going two miles per hour looking for a spot, it might be working only on electricity. When you go to a stoplight, the engine will shut off, things like that. A plug-in hybrid gives you the option of plugging the car in and charging up a battery and then you can drive it like an electric car for a certain number of miles, say between 20, 30, or 40 miles. For a plug-in hybrid, if you use it every day to do your daily errands, then go home and plug it in, you're essentially driving an electric car. Then when you have a long road trip, say you want to go to Los Angeles or you want to go someplace else, then the gas engine kicks in only then. Interesting. Okay. So I guess when people are moving from always having gas-powered cars to thinking about possibly an electric vehicle, hybrid, mm -hmm. and especially a plug-in hybrid, kind of seems like the best of both worlds when you're making that decision. Yes. They're worth taking a test drive. If you're going to buy a car, 
and an electric car is on your list, that's great. You should test drive that. And you should also test drive the hybrid. The hybrid requires the least amount of change and it also are the least expensive of the three we're talking about. Electric cars are the most expensive. Next down from that, we plug in hybrid and then a regular hybrid, like say a Toyota RAV4 or a Prius, or there's many, there's many hybrids out on the market. Those are usually the least expensive in terms of vehicles that use less gasoline. Okay. Now, besides the upfront price that you mentioned for electric vehicles, what are some of the most common concerns about switching from gas to electric? Well, where to charge is one. If you own your own home and can install a charger on your property, an electric car is going to work great for you. You're going to be really happy with that experience. But if that's not you, then you may have concerns about where to charge the car and also, more importantly, how long it takes to charge the car once you get there. Another concern is how electric cars work in super hot and super cold weather. That's a, that's a valid concern. And also, what happens if the batteries go out or they have to be replaced outside of a warranty? Those are all concerns that people have, and, and those are valid concerns. And what does happen if the battery goes out and the warranty no longer covers it? Uh, the same thing that happens with anything when you're out of warranty. It's called good luck to you. <laughs> the problem is, is that the electric vehicle batteries are very expensive. So where we know if a gasoline-powered car or a hybrid let's say the transmission goes out or the engine goes out, there's a cost to that that, you know, three, four, five thousand dollars maybe at the most that you can maybe justify. The batteries in some of these cars are so prohibitively expensive that the average person would not be able to afford to replace them outside of a warranty. Now, the good news is that the warranty, when you're buying a new car, you shouldn't have to worry about this. The warranties typically go at least eight years or 100,000 miles on the battery and drive components for electric cars. Okay. Now, I find that another concern that people have about electric is they get range anxiety. They're worried about how far it will go. And then they think it takes eight hours to charge up every time you get low, which is not necessarily the case. That's the slow charger as opposed to the quick charger. But why should people think about range and what are the concerns that they should really have in mind? So here are some concerns to keep in mind. Most electric cars can go the range that they tell you. So when you go buy a car like a Kia or whatever it is, and they say, oh, this car has a 275 mile range, there's a pretty good chance it's going to go that far. You don't have to worry about that. However, it might be a little bit less if you're on the freeway. That takes a little bit more energy to move all that air out of the way. Um, The other thing to consider is while there are fast chargers, most automakers have in the owner's manual, frequent fast charging can harm the battery. So it will make the battery last less long or or shorten its life. But at the same time, I don't think range anxiety is necessarily the thing to worry about. I do think that the valid concern there is how long will it take me? Of course, on a level two charger, eight hours, that's not reasonable. But to fully charge up a battery, it could be an hour. Now, that doesn't sound like long, but think about if you're on a road trip, do you want to take an extra hour to do that? Electric cars work best when they're around town and, you know, you're just doing your errands each day, drop off at school, work, groceries, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And Las Vegas is actually a really good place to have an electric vehicle because it's a relatively small area that people need to drive in and a lot of Mm -hmm. stop and go if you're not on the freeway. So when you're stopping and going, the battery starts powering itself, right? Right. When you're stopping and going in a hybrid or an electric car, it uses less energy. 
So in a way, you could say, I'm thankful for this traffic because it doesn't use up the battery as much. Yeah, nice. Okay. So where can people go if they want to find out more about the pros and cons of electric versus hybrid versus plug-in hybrid versus gas and kind of make that decision for themselves? Right. I think it's going to vary from person to person. But for more information on what we've been talking about, you can go to Kelly Blue Book's website, which is kbb.com. And there is a buying guide that says exactly what you said, pros and cons of all these vehicles right there on the homepage. Nice. Okay. So kbb.com is the website to go to, stands for Kelly Blue Book, kbb.com. And check out the buying guide. You can look at the pros and cons. Basically, the options are you've got gas powered, then you've got regular hybrid, then you've got plug-in hybrid, and then you've got electric. So those are the four options that you can look at. And moving towards electric is a great way to look towards the future. Brian, I want to thank you so much for being here and sharing your expertise on the topic and letting people know more about the pros and cons right here, because I'm sure a lot of people are confused and have questions and you've answered a lot of them. So I appreciate your time. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Every 36 seconds, a vehicle is stolen in the United States. Cars are an important investment and you have the power to protect it. Remove valuables from your car or place out of view. Roll up your windows completely. Don't leave your car running while unattended, especially during the winter and always lock your doors and take your keys or fob with you. If you know something about a vehicle theft, call us at 1-800-TELL-NICB. This is a public service message from the National Insurance Crime Bureau. I'm David O'Leary. Welcome. This is Odyssey's I'm Listening. Talk really can save lives. Odyssey is committed to normalizing the conversations that we have around mental health and suicide prevention, Today's program will be dealing with youth suicide and mental health. If you're struggling, remember call 988, the toll-free 24-hour suicide prevention lifeline for care and referrals. We're joined today by Dr. Christine Moutier, who is the Chief Medical Officer for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. She has spent many years working to create awareness about mental health and suicide prevention among all different types of population, but we're going to focus on children for our time together. Dr. Moutier, great to see you again. You too, David. This is something that AFSP has been aware of, obviously, for some time. There's been recent data from the CDC, and I'm not even quite sure as of this, as we record this, if it's official data or if it's just sort of headlines that have been released about the data, but certainly there is a mental health crisis among children, among certain segments of the population, but children especially these days. And it's not necessarily just related to the pandemic in the last couple of years. Can you talk a little bit about where we are with children's mental health and suicide among youth? Our U.S. Surgeon General declared youth mental health in a state of emergency, essentially, and that was in the early part of the pandemic. But you're right that the crisis that we're in, and I'm calling it a crisis from a public health standpoint, just because of the prevalence and the level of suffering that is going on and the availability of resources. But he, he declared it a state of emergency while mental health experiences and suicide rates had been going up for a number of years before the pandemic began. But of course, it was then kind of brought to a head with everyone really becoming much more aware, more willing to talk about it with all of the changes going on with schools, with the social structure of how kids grow up and develop, how our brains develop in that stage of life. 
everything was kind of upended. Mm -hmm. And my own view is that mental health and suicide are very complex aspects of human health. And for children and youth, that's no different. But because they're developing, it can show up in some different ways that I think we as a society, there's just a lot of room for putting into action what we're now talking about more and more. We understand that mental health is real. It's as important as physical health. But what does that look like when a child begins to kind of fall off their developmental trajectory in terms of their physical and mental health growth? So that's how I like to look at it with kids is they're on a trajectory of growth and change. And that maybe is what partly what makes it a little more challenging for us as parents and teachers and coaches. From where I sit, you know, it's almost easy to say in the the last couple of years, we've kind of just figured out how to talk about mental health and suicide in adults, you know, as a population in general, forget about the kids. We'll we'll get there. You know, we're we're trying to figure it out with kids, but it does seem like something that has uh, taken us a little while to kind of get right. And we're working on it and we're getting there, but we haven't quite figured it out among youth just yet. Again, where I think we have room for improvement is putting into action true mental health literacy, meaning it's not just this idea, big words and topics, but it's what does it look like in my child or in my classroom? How does that play out and what role do I have to play to not just address mental health problems when they arise, but even create an environment where kids are more likely to flourish and where we can actually prevent Mm -hmm. the onset of mental health suffering to some degree. Not, of course, not completely, but like many aspects of health, there are things we can do to actually make a difference in terms of who becomes at risk for suicide. When that happens, are they available to access support and treatment and all of that? Let's talk about this partnership with the American Academy of Pediatrics, this blueprint for youth suicide, which was in development for some time. A couple of years ago, it became formal. Talk a little bit about that, what the idea behind that was, and maybe some of the specific interventions that that calls for. Yeah, it was very exciting for us at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to have the opportunity to hear from AAP, the, the American Academy of Pediatrics. Their members are pediatricians. So they are a group of, of individuals who are frontline with our youth frontline. every day, but aren't necessarily trained as part of their pediatrics training in mental health or suicide prevention. So AAP listened to their members that there was a dire need they felt from, from the pediatrician's standpoint, as well as the families. There are also, AAP also includes parent uh, and youth voices. And they wanted to really deepen their own toolbox, their sophistication with what they were offering to pediatricians around mental health and suicide prevention. And at AFSP, we were very excited to partner with them to develop, as you mentioned, the blueprint. It's a national blueprint for youth suicide prevention. And I love the way we went about it, even creating that blueprint, which was to include all voices. It was a very inclusive process, convening you know, about 150 groups and families, voices of lived experience, youth workers from all different sectors, from child welfare to the foster system mm-hmm. uh, to athletics, you know, all sides of it. So even though AAP is, you know, obviously a group of pediatricians coming from a clinical, clinically trained standpoint, they understood, as we do at AFSP, that this is a public health matter. And so that means you have to get everyone involved from families to community, faith organizations, schools, 
as well as the clinics. Mm -hmm. And all of that came together to develop this blueprint that was really drawn out of scientific discoveries that have yet to be put into action at a scalable level. And so that's the beautiful thing about this kind of work is that AAP cares about it. They prioritized it and now made this available to pediatricians and anyone involved with youth, actually. So there is a section that is for clinicians that walks a pediatrician or any uh, health professional who works with youth through the steps to take in their clinic with regard to screening and what to do if a youth screens positive for suicide risk. All of those important clinical steps, safety planning, lethal means counseling, engaging the family, appropriate referrals to mental health, all of that. But then there's another section of the blueprint that focuses on everything outside a clinical setting. So that's in schools, faith organizations, family, home settings, yeah, Mm -hmm. the whole gamut. And you'd be amazed if you dig in and this blueprint lives on the AAP website. And it's like a, it's almost like a, an interactive experience. You really have to kind of click here and there and really to dig into the tips and the guidance. But it's not a pie in the sky sort of set of guidance. It's very much practical steps and how to do it uh, with links to more resources. You know, I love to hear you say, to talk about the data, and, and I know AFSP, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, to be a data-driven organization. And I guess it's good to hear that there's a data piece to this, going into how these clinicians are, you know, this is how they live their life is, is through procedures and data and, and so forth. Is there pushback or have you felt any sort of pushback from the medical community on this? We don't talk about that. That's not what we're here for. We're here for the body rather than the mind. Has there been pushback to that? I think we've gotten past that kind of overt attitude. I'm glad to hear. <laughs> um, but where I'd say the more understandable pushback is happening is that this is not just on individual pediatricians to put into action. Anytime there's a, a change in you know making any clinical issue a priority in a health system, there's a whole set of system change that needs to happen, policies and workflows. Mm-hmm. It's a team sport, uh, medicine is. So I think the barrier at this point in terms of really scaling this more widely is just that system change takes a very intentional investment of time and effort to bring a team to learn and to bring all the learnings back to their health system to put the changes into place. But I also think we don't need to, like there is that level that's really important, system change. But there's also the thing that every one of us, including a pediatrician in their office, can do that doesn't necessarily take more time, but it takes just paying attention Mm -hmm. and the engagement of being present in the moment and recognizing that the person in the room with me is suffering in some way and opening up that dialogue. So, you know, we talk about that a lot, as you well know, David, and you do such an amazing job of it as well, to just recognize that there's a way for all of us to be more present, more authentic, to take the risk in a way to talk about our own stuff, which signals to other people that it's safe. It's okay. It's normal to struggle. In fact, it's a sign of strength. If you're able to separate in a way your ego and any aspects that are very natural and understandable, like feeling shame, ashamed, those are human instincts. But the more we learn about mental health, the more we can kind of separate that out and realize if it were a physical health issue, it would be the smartest thing to address it in the most proactive way. 
And so we're learning how to do that with our mental health as well. I've long held that uh, our youth, you know, they're going to save us all, but they've, they've long been much more able and open in a, in a free and open and honest way to talk about so many things that perhaps my generation, whatever that means to you as you're listening, but have trouble with. And so I think that's a re- real plus. In just the short time we have left, can you maybe talk quickly about some of those interventions or how to have that conversation if you're listening with your youth or a youth that you interact with in a safe and healthful way? How do you open up the conversation if you're concerned? I think the first thing to start with is don't wait for the concern or the crisis to be you know, presenting itself. In our everyday lives, we can make little shifts whether it's having dinner together or when you're driving in the car with your family members, take the time to get out of the business of the day and the rush rush and take the conversation to a bit of a deeper level. Your kids will do it actually all the time, but we're, we don't always recognize that's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, when they start talking about what's going on in their friend group or what an incident that happened out on the field, those are the things to tune into. They're letting you into their real internal experiences with their peer group. And so anyway, I think there's some tips to that, that even for me as a parent and as an expert, I've tripped up and (laughs) jumped into advice giving mode or like this should have happened. And then of course that shuts down the conversation. So the whole goal is active listening in those moments. And again, just creating that environment that feels safe and okay for people to share what's actually going on. We tried to raise our kids in the most non-judgmental environment around human suffering and mental health distress. And yet mm-hmm. human instincts are so strong and they pick it up elsewhere too. But even in the home, we're not perfect. So sure. just remember, you, you really do have to go out of your way to tell your child or your loved one that their well-being and they as a human being are the priority. Mm -hmm. Anything they're going through is understandable. There won't be judgment for it. We all face challenges, but we're a family and we're going to get through this. Anything they're going through together, but then to really open up some space for them to talk about what's going on. And you have to do that with kind of open-ended questions. Or again, just if they're talking about whatever random thing, let that be a wide open thing. And Realize you don't have to bring it to closure with a plan in that one conversation. I think we're so wired as problem solvers, and that can be a disservice. What we're trying to do in this process, in this moment, is signal to our child, or again, another family member, that we are able to handle them talking about their distress without jumping into a reaction mode. And that that really takes some practice Mm. to do. I think the other thing to note is that if someone's tone of voice sounds like they are extremely stressed, overwhelmed, feeling like their circumstances has them feeling trapped or like they feel like they're a burden to others, those are all signs that there's a reasonable likelihood that they're also having thoughts of ending their life. And it is okay. It is a good thing to ask directly about that and to open up conversation so that they can share and realize that it's not necessarily a 911 emergency if someone is having suicidal thoughts. In fact, there's a very, very good likelihood that they've been living with those thoughts on and off. 
and that sharing them is this important first step in what can be an ongoing process of having their situation addressed. And whenever there's suicidal thoughts present, I think that's an indication that a health professional should then be brought into the picture at some point in time, whether it's a pediatrician or a mental health professional. We should note if you're listening and are struggling or know someone who is struggling, 988 is the number to call anytime, day or night, 365 days a year to get care and to be connected to help. You can find out more about youth suicide and mental health in general at AFSP.org. Dr. Christine Moutier, the Chief Medical Officer of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, thank you so much for all you do, and, and thanks for being with us for Odysseys on Listening. Thank you, David. And again, thank you so much for making this a priority. It's on the minds of so many people, so many families and kids. This is Odysseys I'm Listening. Everyone has a community to lean on. A neighborhood, school, kids' teams, where you worship, work, work out, or any other place or group where you choose to belong. Communities can provide support when you need it, and even when you don't know you do. Like when it comes to preventing underage drinking and other substance use. You've talked with your kids and shared clear expectations, but you're not with them every minute. Your community members, friends and relatives, teachers and coaches, faith leaders, and other important adults in your kids' lives can be your eyes, ears, and a supportive influence when you're not around, reinforcing your messages with your kids and alerting you to warning signs of underage drinking or other substance use. So talk with your kids about these issues and involve the members of your community to help keep your kids safe. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit talktheyhearyou.samhsa.gov. I'm Heather Vale with the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show, and this is your community events calendar for nonprofit initiatives and charity events around the Valley. Monday's Dark with Mark Chinook is a bi-monthly musical fundraising party at The Space, with each event raising $10,000 for a specific charity in 90 minutes. Upcoming shows include this Monday, October 23rd at 8 p.m., benefiting Kids Uplifting Kids, and Monday, November 6th at 8 p.m., benefiting Critical Care Comics. Get tickets or find out more details at mondaysdark.com. That's mondaysdark.com. Green Our Planet's next giant student farmer's market is happening next Wednesday, October 25th from 9.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. at the Clark County Government Building in downtown Las Vegas. The student-run farmer's market will feature produce grown from Clark County School District School Gardens. Student farmers will be there to sell their produce and crafts to the public, with all proceeds returning to the schools to amplify and preserve the school's garden programs. Find out more at greenhourplanet.org. That's greenhourplanet.org. Project 150's annual Fall Celebration Fundraising Party is happening next Thursday, October 26th from 7 to 10 p.m. at Illuminarium. This immersive 12th annual charity celebration promises to be a fun party with MC Chet Buchanan from 98.5 KLUC and live music by Zoe Bowie. Get your tickets at project150.givesmart.com. That's project150.givesmart.com. And find out more about Project 150's work with disadvantaged high school students at project150.org. That's project150.org. 
The Putting for a Cure Driving to End FSHD Golf Tournament, which funds progress for FSHD muscular dystrophy, takes place next Saturday, October 28th at the Wild Horse Golf Club in Henderson. Find out more about the Society at fshdsociety.org and sign up to golf at give.fshdsociety.org slash putting for a cure. That's F-O-R-E. So give dot fshdsociety.org slash putting for a cure. Communities in schools of Nevada's holding their annual Today for Tomorrow Gala with a lace-up for the future theme on Friday, November 3rd at 6 p.m. at Chaos Nightclub in the Palms Casino Resort. This year's event honors President Nikki Fargus and the 2022 world champion Las Vegas Aces, And the theme celebrates sneakerhead culture, so you're encouraged to incorporate sneakers into your wardrobe. Get tickets or find out more at cisnevada.org. That's cisnevada.org. And Speedway Children's Charities holding their 10th annual PJ 5K run and one-mile walk on Sunday, November 12th from 4.30 to 6 p.m. with registration beginning at 3 p.m. at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. You can register online in advance at speedwaycharities.org slash Las Vegas. That's speedwaycharities.org slash Las Vegas. All participants receive a coupon for $5 off glittering lights at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. And if you donate a new pair of PJs, you'll be entered into a drawing for tickets to NASCAR next March. Once again, the website to register is speedwaycharities.org slash Las Vegas. Imagine if holding your newborn child or lifting a cup became impossible challenges. This is the reality for many living with FSHD a type of muscular dystrophy that affects nearly 1 million people worldwide. There is currently no treatment or cure, but there is hope. Help make a difference at the Wild Horse Golf Club in Henderson on October 28th. Swing to support those with FSHD at the Putting for a Cure Tournament. Sign up now at fshdsociety.org backslash golf to end FSHD. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. This is Tony Kornheiser's show. I'm Tony. We expected someone else. So what exactly is the show about? Hmm, I don't know. It's a sports show nominally. Football's over, but we're finally at a point where things matter in college basketball. And baseball season is on deck. Greatest three words in the English language, pitchers and catchers. We have some of the best voices come on and explain what matters or what makes an upset, like Ryan does. <laughs> Nine over eight. No, that's not an upset. No, yeah, it is, Bob. And if you're lucky, I might just tell you about my search for discounted sleep pants or my worries about what my dog just ate. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.